Really. Let's pray. Avinu Makenu, our Father, our King, we thank you, Lord God, for your grace and your mercy. We thank you that you have not left us as orphans, but you gave us the Ruach HaKodesh, the Holy Spirit, to bring all things to remembrance, to teach us, to guide us, to instruct us. We yield our minds to you even now, Lord, to your Holy Spirit, to give us understanding and revelation, that you can take the very words I'm saying and you can, can shake them, sculpt them for each person here in a way of what they really need to hear today. And I know you can do that, Lord. And I surrender to your spirit in that, in Yeshua's name, amen. Well, it's been a while since I've been up here. I mean, we had lots of things that happened, the men's conference, the, my next-door neighbor's water flooding into my house, and just all kind of stuff has happened in that time. So I'm, I'm glad to be back and, uh, and to be able to pick up where we left off. We had the high holy days which got us off of, uh, we took a detour uh, from the teaching. We've been working through the book of Hebrews, and uh, we kind of worked through it precept by precept, verse by verse, trying to gain that understanding. And that's what we've been working through. And then when the high holidays hit, we, we detoured. We said, well, we've got to deal with Yom Turah, we've got to deal with Yom Kippur, we've got to deal with Sukkot. We've got to bring out the meaning of those things to us within a Messianic Jewish context. How does Yeshua fulfill those things and what does it mean for us? Why do we track with those, that season, that holiday? I mean, as I've said many times... And, of course, some people who, who may get excited about Jewish roots and then they come in the Messianic world and we're a little bit different in some of the Jewish roots movements and we say, well, actually, no one on the earth today, actually for the last 1,800 years or so, no one has kept any of the Moedim, the Feast of the Lord, according to Torah. People, well, well, we do. I said, no, you don't. It's us. But one reason you don't have a temple to bring the, the sacrifices that are required, required to bring up for each one of those days. Plus, you're celebrating it in the diaspora and not in Israel and Jerusalem. Because the scriptures are very clear that that's where it should be celebrated. And so we make that clear. So people say, well, then why do we do it? I said, because we want to track with the, the olive tree that we are a part of. The olive tree is a Jewish tree. You can read about that in Romans 11, the olive tree, and, and, and the remnant of believers are the ones that are carrying the covenant of that olive tree, of the promise to the house of Israel and Judah. The new covenant is to the house of Israel and Judah. Jeremiah, I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and Judah, and he says in his new covenant, you know, he write his Torah in the heart. So, so that's there, and part of that tracking of the feast days is that Yeshua says, all of the law and the prophets and the wisdom books speak of him. So we know that he is the Passover lamb that takes away the sins of the world. We know that at Yom Kippur, that he is the scapegoat that takes all the sins of Israel and it's taken upon him. He takes it outside of the camp. He himself suffered and became an atoning sacrifice to take those sins outside of the camp. And all the feast days speak of Yeshua, the Feast of Tabernacles. Not only the fact that God provides a dwelling place for us, but Yeshua himself as the word came in tabernacle in the midst of his people. And so we see Yeshua and all of those feasts, and they were given to God as a way, God gave them to Israel as a way of setting up appointments, appointed times to meet with his people. We do that in the natural. We might have random times that we run into people, but we have special times to say, hey, I'm having a dinner party. Be there. 
And that's a special arrangement. Well, God set his moedim, which means the appointed times, to have special times to meet with the house of Israel and Judah. But those from the nations who had joined themselves to the house of Israel and Judah were never excluded from these things. They were allowed to be a part of it and flow with it and work with it. Now, the temple's been destroyed for a long time, so no one has offered up the sacrifices and stuff. But just like we read in the book of Daniel, we see a principle of a godly man who was in captivity when the temple was destroyed the first time. Here he is, has been taken off and he's been made a servant in a pagan place. And it was his practice every morning at Shachrit to pray. And then in the afternoon, he would stop what he was doing and he would pray. And then in the evening, he would pray. And people say, oh, that's nice. He prayed three times a day. That must be the number. No, it's not about the three times or whatever many times you want to have. It has to do that even though he was taken out of Jerusalem, the temple is destroyed, he realized that there were certain sacrifices that were offered up. He knew that God would one day return them to the land, and so he ordered his prayer life according to when the sacrifices would have been offered up in the temple. So he wanted to track with the worship in the, in the temple, and knowing that one day God would restore it. And that was one of the things he was praying. Okay, Lord, we've been out in the captivity all this time. Is this the time that you're going to do all this stuff? And he fasted and prayed and sought God's face for 21 days, even though God sent the answer on the first day. It went 21 days because there's these spiritual beings in high places that like to fight and try to stop the move of God. And so they would go after the spirit beings, angels, and they were wrestling. And one of the angels had to get help and get freedom to come and appear before Daniel and say, hey. And Daniel goes on his face when his angel appears before him. Because, you know, it's not like the cute little movies, you know, the little kind of chirp things or, or not like, uh, uh, I mean, they tried it a little bit. Some of you may remember the, the story they had with these angels and the guy would just glow a little bit. You know, well, it wasn't enough to make you go down on your face. But when angels showed up on the scene, people hit the deck. They didn't pull out their, their cell phones. Let me get a picture of this. Hold still, angel. I just need to get a picture of you here right now. I want to forward this out. I want to get this out to my peoples. Like this. No, 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 no. You're not thinking about that when this glory shows up. And this is just an angel. How much more when Yeshua comes unveiled in all of his glory and appears for you, what you're going to do? You're going to be down on your face. So, so this whole thing of the, the feast days that we were on was saying that, look, we're tracking with it because according to Romans 11, we've been grafted into this olive tree, whether Jew or Gentile. Jews uh, rightfully belong to the tree. It's their tree. God cultivated the Jewish people as a special people to do great things over the whole earth through them. And so because of that, they rightfully belong in the tree. But because of unbelief, some were cut off, broken off that tree. But for those Gentiles, people from the nations, that's what the word Gentile means. It does not mean pagan. People try to say, oh, it means pagan. No, it doesn't. God even said to Abraham, I'll make you a great goy. That's the Hebrew word for Gentile. He said, I'll make you a great Gentile. And he, he did make them. The word Gentile just means people group, nations. And Israel is a nation apart from all the other nations. But God takes those from the nation, those who are not of Israel, apart from Israel. And he says, I will graft you into this tree by faith, by trusting in Yeshua. Now, here's the thing. When you're grafted into a tree, you take on the life of that tree that you've been grafted into, even though you are not a natural 
part of that tree, but you've been grafted into it, so you begin to take of the fatness of that tree and flow. You know, trees have a flowing time. Sap flows. Sap doesn't just sit there. It flows out. There are times it goes out and it causes the leaves to go out, and sometimes it withdraws and it causes the leaves to drop. There's a flowing going on inside of a tree. And that's a good thing. Some of us take advantage of that, this thing called maple syrup. Wonderful thing that sap flows. You can cut on a maple tree and you can hang your bucket, stick your little cork in, and and the syrup will come in. You can make maple syrup. I love maple syrup. We had maple syrup up on the mountain. It was so good. (laughs) Nice. Not that fake stuff that people make out of high fructose corn syrup. No, I'm talking about maple syrup, the real deal, you know, that many of us grew up on and didn't know that later on when they stopped to switch to this other stuff that was cheaper that that was better when it wasn't. You know, go for the real thing. Go for the maple. It'll cost you a little bit more money, but it tastes so much better and it's better for you. So you've been grafted in and you flow with that tree. And part of that tree, God has set appointed times. So even when you're in the diaspora outside of the land of Israel, you want to flow with the cycle of God's times. And that's one of the reasons why we say, hey, it's Sukkot. Even though we're in a diaspora, we're going to take some time to acknowledge Sukkot and remember what goes on there. And we're going to pray for the prayers that would be offered up in Sukkot if we were in Jerusalem. But we know with faith expectation that one day that God's going to bring the fullness of all those feasts to, to pass, especially when Yeshua is dwelling and reigning over the earth from Jerusalem, that even the nations of the earth, it says in Zechariah, if they do not send representatives up to the land, of Israel during that time that God will withhold rain from his season. Israel is going to be the center of what God is doing. One of the mistakes of the body of Messiah is thinking that God was done with the Jewish people and they were not important anymore. No, they're at the center of the new covenant. In fact, the new covenant is made with the house of Israel and Judah. Nowhere does it say, God says, I will make a new covenant with Egypt. Well, be, I'd make a new covenant with the United States of America. I'll make a new covenant with Korea. No, he doesn't say that. His new covenant is with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. But he extends anyone who calls on the name of Yeshua to be brought in through grafting into that relationship with him in the new covenant. That's the power of it. So that you can have Jew and Gentile together in one body anticipating the return of the Messiah as we remember the appointed times that Yeshua says speaks of him. And so that's one of the reasons why we do what we do, not because we think it's going to achieve salvation for us. Our salvation comes through Yeshua and Yeshua alone. That's where we put our confidence. He's the one that was nailed to a tree and lifted up. And the scripture said, if you look to him, there'll be healing and life for you. And that's what we have done. And the rest of the stuff is just bonus stuff. The stuff, you know, you get your pie, then they add the whipped cream and the cherries and all that. That's the extra stuff. That's the Jewish stuff. You put it on top. But the root of our salvation is in Messiah Yeshua. And we're not ashamed of that gospel of good news concerning Yeshua. We know it's to the Jew first and also to the non-Jew. God's salvation is to go out to the whole earth. But he's not going to forget Israel, which he's carved into his heart and hand to remember forever. 
So that's what we detoured for the season of the high holy days. We used Yom Kippur as a time to intercede for Israel and pray for it and pray for Jewish people to get saved and to come to know the Messiah. And, and we spent a lot of time with that. And we believe that God is gathering those prayers up. And, and, and even though we're not seeing the return that we would like to see. See, some of us are old enough, right? We've been around. I'm looking in this room, and I'm, I'm seeing Lynn. I'm seeing Sandra. I'm seeing Elaine. We were old enough to know when the Spirit of the Lord was moving back in the latter part of the 70s and 80s, and God did a move that lots of Jewish people came to faith. And that birthed the Messianic movement in our area. It came forth. Sandra's husband, late husband Manny, was a big part of that and establishing that and putting that in order and helping these communities to form and be, be put together. And we saw the move of God. We, I mean, it was easier in those days, though there was a lot of persecution against us, not only from the Jewish community, but from the body of Messiah. Yeah, a lot of y'all don't know that history. You know, Messianic stuff is more accepted now, but back in those days, sisters testify, it wasn't so accepted. People called us cults dragging people back into bondage under the law. They had a lot of bad things to say about us. They wouldn't sit down and really understand. But, you know, God does what he does. And at that time, he was bringing a lot of Jewish people in. And they're getting saved. And then God flipped it a little bit. and said, okay, I'm going to soften the Gentile world so they will understand this messianic thing. And a lot of people wrote a lot of good stuff. Dan Justin, Manny Brockman, they wrote things to help people to understand. And that material got out and people began to understand. And things flipped and suddenly we had... Non-Jews desiring to understand these things begin to come in greater number, in greater number than the Jewish people, which presented a little bit of a problem for us because we're trying to figure out, okay, we're trying to reach the Jewish people, but Gentiles are coming. And, and through our community, we've done different things. We have different approaches to it, and that's okay. I'm, I'm coming to a place of peace about that because I know what God has told us to do, and I know he's what told, he's told Tikkun to do, and I know where we are, and there's a unity there. And so we're just going to keep doing what God says to do to watch how he's going to bring all these things about. And I know he's doing things. So, so here we are. We got Jews and we got Gentiles in here together who love Yeshua. And we're working through the book of Hebrews before we took that detour uh, from a detour we had already taken. We were in Hebrews 6. That says, therefore, leaving the discussion of the elementary principles of Messiah, let us go on to perfection, not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works, faith towards God, of doctrines of baptism, of laying on hands, of resurrection of the dead, of eternal judgment, and this we will do if God permits. An interesting thing about that, we took a detour at that point to really try to get underneath these six foundational things from a, several, from a couple of perspectives. First and foremost, how people would have understood that when they first heard it. And the way they would have understood it when they first heard it would have been within the context of Torah. They would have been looking at, hey, this has to be in Torah, this repentance from dead works, this faith towards God, these doctrines of baptism, these laying on of hands, this, this, this thing of the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. And so we did that. We took time to look at these things from a Torah perspective. We, we looked at the sacrifices especially of how God required Israel bringing these sacrifices. And in that, you see all of these principles starting to come forth. You know, that when a person committed a sin, they just going to say, okay, God, I'm sorry. And they go on about their life. They couldn't go harvest some vegetables and fruit. One guy tried to do that at the beginning, and, God, and the sacrifice was not acceptable. That's what Cain did. And God said, that's not acceptable. 
Abel brought a sacrifice of an animal, something he wasn't responsible for working to cause about. It was just born and birth. And he says, God, is for you, for, for my sin. And so God established this principle of having us to understand that atonement has to be made when you come in repentance. And that repentance is the starting point, a change of your mind and your heart and your direction. That's what repentance is. Scripture says that your spirit, soul, and body, if you're going to repent, you got to repent on all three levels. If you do not, you have not repented. You've only partially repented. In your spirit, you got to have a change in your heart. In your soul, which covers your emotions, your mind, and your intellect, you got to have a change in your thoughts and your patterns. And in your body, you got to have a change in your actions. Don't tell me you repented and you're still doing the same old thing. You haven't repented. You may have made a mental note to the things of God. You may have even shed a few tears. You may have a sorrow of the world that it says in Scripture. But godly sorrow leads to repentance, a change. And when you have repented, when you have really repented, no one will ask you, have you repented? They only ask you, have you repented, when there's something questionable about your walk that doesn't show a change. But boy, when you really repented, no one will ask you that because your heart will be different, your words out of your mouth will be different, and your actions will be different, and everybody will just stand by and say, boy, when they repent, they repent. They change. Because that's what happens when there's a godly sorrow. It leads you to the point. And so they saw that principle as they brought the animal and then they're laying on hands to identify with that animal and, and then moving into place of various washings and cleansings with certain sins that you had to do that would keep you separated from God. God established that in Torah that sin will separate you and you need the cleansing. You need something in order to be made right so you can come back before him. And we saw the principles of that. We then went on to the, the whole thing of laying on hands, which was not only for uh, identifying with animals, sacrifices, that's part of laying on hands. You lay hands on the animal and basically say, this animal is for my sins. And there's a transfer that takes place. We saw that the high priest did this at, at Yom Kippur, that he would confess all the sins of Israel over that thing. And that sins would be transferred from Israel to the animal. And then the animal would be taken outside the camp and that sins would be taken away. We went on to see that as, as, we, as, as these guys walk with God, that they began to understand that there was something beyond the physical realm. They start to have hope. They're like, wow, we're doing all this stuff, but what happens, you know, but we just die? What's the purpose of it? Is there anything else? And they, didn't, they can only know what God tells them. See, that's the thing about Revelation. Some things you can't figure out on your own. You need God to tell you what's going on. And what's on the other side of the veil, veil of life God has let you know. And so God began to hint to them that there's something more. And, I, and, and, and so we go from resurrection dead to eternal judgment. And I love the, the wording in Ecclesiastes. When we see a hint in Daniel, Daniel says, hey, there's going to be a resurrection of everyone, really. The dead, the, those who are wicked and those who are righteous, everybody. Here's something we got to remember. Sometimes in Christian circles, they only promise resurrection to those who are believers in Jesus. But that's not really fully true. Because Scripture says everybody will be resurrected, whether righteous or whether wicked. The question is what you resurrected to. That's important. 
The resurrection is going to happen whether you believe in it or not. They don't have to have any faith in the resurrection, but it's going to happen. You're going to be presently surprised or maybe not sadly surprised that you thought that this is all there was to this world and all of a sudden, boom, hey, hold on. I've always said there's nothing beyond here. God says, oh, yeah, I'm, I'm on the other side here. And uh, so, therefore, I'm going to bring you before me the resurrection of the dead. Daniel 12 speaks of that. But here's what Ecclesiastes says. You know, here's Solomon using all his money and wealth and free time to try to understand the world around him. And after he go waste a lot of his time, at the end of it, he says this, Ecclesiastes 12, verse 13 and 14. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God shall bring every work into judgment with every secret thing, everything that's hidden, whether it's good or whether it's evil, whether it's bad. Everything you will be judged for. Yeshua took it a step further and said even every idle word you will have to give account of. Ooh. Ooh. That, see, that scares me. I'm a, I talk a lot. See? That's part of my job is to talk a lot, is to teach and to preach. And I, I'm very careful about that. Those who've known me know I don't just, oh, just throw out any ideas. Some subjects I wouldn't touch for years because I don't know what I'm talking about. And until God gave me understanding and revelations, and now I'll speak to that because he's giving me the understanding. Because I'm careful about what I speak because I, I know that I'm going to have to give an account for all my teachings, all my advice, all my counseling. Whew, scary stuff. Scary stuff. Come on, counselors. Scary stuff, counselors. You know, it's not just coming in. Boy, you know that God said, oh, no, this is what you said, and that was wrong. So, you know, God's going to hold you accountable for that. So we got to be careful with our words. And so God will bring everything. And that's kind of what we walk through. We won't be able to walk through that again. I think they are available. You can get them on, online and listen to it and follow it back. So here's what we want to move on today. We want to move on to talk about, as he says here, let us leave the discussion of the elementary principles, and this we will do if God permits. And I want to make an emphasis here that this is not about knowledge. This is not about how much you know. He's not mad and angry with them because the book of Hebrews was written to encourage Jewish believers. It's the book to the Hebrews. It's the Jewish believers. So I know the non-Jews say, well, I guess I can tune out now because I'm not Jewish. No, because every word that comes forth from the mouth of God, we're supposed to live. And so the principles that are established in there, even though, in fact, I guess get news for you. All most of what we call the New Testament, which many of us call the apostolic writings, is that it was written to somebody other than us. The letter to the Ephesians was to the Ephesians. The letter to the Corinthians was to the Corinthians. To deal with issues they were going through. Same thing with the Galatians. Same thing with Philippi. Even the letter to Timothy was to Timothy. We are reading other people's mail. Some people got in trouble for that in our country in the past couple of years, right? But we do this all the time. These are letters written to other people, and we're reading them. Why? Because they're God-breathed. They come from the Spirit of the Lord. And even though he's writing to Ken, the principles he speaks to Ken will apply to everyone when you look at the principles that's spoken. He might tell you to do something a little different than what he's requiring of Ken, but if there's a principle area, it applies to everybody. And so that's what we get to glean, that even though this letter was written to the Hebrews, we get to understand the character of God and what he was dealing with. And so why was he writing the book to the Hebrews? Because these were Jewish believers 
who come to faith in Yeshua. They heard the message of the gospel, of the kingdom. They embraced the Messiah. They're excited about this thing. They're dancing. They're happy. We've met the Messiah. They go home to tell mom and dad how wonderful that they met the Messiah. And instead of getting a hug and a kiss and a nice meal for the night, they get yelled at. And in some situations, the family say, you're dead to us. You're a heretic. We don't want anything to do with you. And so persecution broke out on the Jewish believers in Yeshua, not only by their brethren, but also by Rome. And now they're sitting here starting after this goes on for a while. You know, you can deal with a little persecution here and there. But when it's consistent, when it's happened to you all the time, you begin to wonder, did I miss it? Did I do something wrong? If I'm, am I following the truth? And that's what happened to these guys. They begin to question whether the message of Yeshua being the atoning sacrifice for Israel, the Messiah, the Son of the living God by which they have life and the new covenants brought in, they begin to question whether or not it was real. Maybe it was something else. And so the writer of Hebrews, seeing that this was happening, says, oh boy, I need to encourage these guys. And so the first five chapters deals with simply saying that God has spoken before by prophets, by angels, by Moses, by priests, and you guys accept that. How much more now that he's spoken through his son, who's greater than the angels, who's the very son of God and not just the prophet, who owns the house that Moses faithfully served in, who comes from the priesthood, of Melchizedek, that is an eternal priesthood that goes on forever and ever and ever. He comes from that. And then, by the way, you know, there's a sense that Levi paid tithes through Abraham through that because they were still in Abraham's loins. I mean, it's the spiritual principles that the writer is trying to establish for these Jewish believers. They say, look, guys, this is a greater weight of glory with this Messiah. And, it, and, and you know that the people who seek to serve God suffer persecution. Amen. It's not a new thing. He says, he, so he's kind of nice and gentle at first, and then he kind of turns a little bit around the fifth chapter, and he begins to say, hold it now. You know, some people, he starts like the fourth into the fifth, he says, some people of old wandered around in the desert for 40 years and never entered into the promised land. And the reason for it is because of unbelief. They stopped believing because of the persecution that they were experiencing through being in the desert. Where was our water going to come from? Oh, it's so awful being here in the desert. And they became murmurers and complainers. I don't know if this is really God. We were better off when we were slaves in Egypt. They didn't say it like that. They just said we were better off in Egypt. And, you know, we had leeks and onions, and we could go there and enjoy the food there. But now we're out here. Where's the water going to come from? Where's the food going to come from? And they're complaining because of this move of God to bring them out with great signs and wonders. And instead of being thankful and saying, Lord, we're willing to endure this because you have given us the promise that you're bringing us into the land, we're going to murmur and complain, and we're going to count the deliverance as nothing. And the end result, it says, God said, enough's enough. You're going to wander around this mountain for 40 years until you all die off, and your children will inherit the promise. And so the writer of Hebrews says, look, 
God is the same. You're murmuring and you're complaining because of persecution from man, and you're entering into a place of entertaining that, that Yeshua is nothing, that his, that his blood means nothing, that doesn't care, and it has no value at all, and you're entering into a place of unbelief, and you're now beginning to be disobedient against the call of the gospel and his kingdom, and he says, I'm warning you that the same thing could happen to you. And so that's the context. So he ends, and, he, and, and the, so the flaw of this is not about knowledge, but it actually points back to the fifth chapter, where he says in verse 13, for everyone who partakes only of milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, for he is a babe. But solid food belongs to those who are full age, that is, they're mature. That is, those who by reason of use have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. This is not about the knowledge of the foundation principles, but whether or not you by faith are walking in them. Whether or not you're believing that what God says is true, and the proof of that is how you live your life. That your life lines up with what you are testifying with your mouth, that Yeshua saved me, gave me new life and new heart and new spirit, that that is what you are walking out, even if you're going through persecution. And so he's saying, you guys have need of somebody to go and teach you the first principles again. Because see, the thing about first principles, they're foundational. What do you do with a foundation? Do you just put it there and enjoy it? Oh, that's such a pretty foundation. I mean, can you imagine we just go down? I'm going to tell you something about foundations. They're not pretty. They're not pretty at all. Go in some of the big buildings. Go, find, go to New York and ask if you go down to the bowels of the building where you can see the foundational work. Suddenly this gorgeous, beautiful building and all the nice things, the foyer you walk in, the hot ceiling, the chandeliers, and then somebody opens the door and lets you go down into the basement of this thing. And it's disgusting. All these beams and pipes and stuff and wires and all that, and it's yucky down there, but it's what's holding the building up. See, that's what happens to some people. They become believers. They get excited about the stuff that's getting built up, and they want to pursue that, and they don't build the foundation deep. You want to build the foundation deep. In fact, according to builders, the higher you want to go, the deeper you must dig. You want a big building? Dig deeper. Stronger foundation, more rooted. And so that foundation is what you build everything else upon. You don't forget the foundation. Now, when I was given the message, I said, it's like the ABCs. Those are foundational. It may seem silly. It may seem very childish. A, B, C, D, E, F, G, H, I, J, K. I mean, you're like, what? Well, you know, that's great. And many of us who've raised kids, we were so happy when they learned the ABC song, were we not? And some of us taught... Hebrew, and we happy they learned the Aleph Bet song. Aleph Bet, Gimel, Daleth, Hey, Vav, Zion, Chetel. You know, we're just so happy that they learned these things. And here we are, and we just applaud them. But what if it's 30 years later, and your little child comes in and says, Mommy, Dad, I'd like to show you something. As they drive their car up, got their wife and their own kids. I'd like to show you something. They walk in, sit down, watch this. A, B, C, D, E, F, G. And then look at you and go, where's the flaws? Where's the flaws? You can be like, 
Ah, uh, what's this all about? Why are you still stuck at A, B, C, D, E, F, G? I was expecting you to come in with an essay. I was expecting you to come in with your, your doctrinal dissertation instead. Why are you singing ABC songs to me? Why aren't you writing full measures of music and things? That's what I want. I don't want to hear the do-re-mi stuff anymore. I want to see something composed and put together. You've been working at this long enough. You have need for somebody to take you to the first things again so you can build upon it. So that's what it's all about. So I want you to remember that part. And he talked about that. So this is not about knowledge. This is about being obedient by faith to the things of the kingdom. Okay? This is about walking in love. Yeshua says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. I take that as a promise. You can take it either way you want. I take it as a promise. If you love him, you will keep his commandments. Some people take it as a, you know, If you love me, you'll keep my commandments. I don't hear it that way. I hear it, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Oh, thank you, God, that you put your love in me that causes me to love you. We first love him. We love him because he first loved us. I'm just responding to him in love. And over the years of walking with him, obedience has come forth. Righteousness has come forth. Keeping his commandments has come forth. Not because I can pat myself on the back that I learned how to keep all these commandments, but because the love he put in me is growing. It's growing and it's getting bigger, and the bigger it gets, the more I love Torah and his ways. You understand? We walk in faith. We want to be doers of the words and not hearers only. That's a grown-up person. They're not just getting knowledge, but they're walking out what they hear. They, they walk. Dan just used to call it faith obedience. It says in Hebrews eleven six, 6, without faith it is impossible to please him. For he that comes to God must believe that he is, and he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. So that's where we went on. Then we move on. Thank you, Lord. Verses 4 to on. For it is impossible for those who were once enlightened, have tasted the heavenly gift, and have become partakers of the Holy Spirit, and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come, if they fall away, to renew them again to repentance, since they crucify again for themselves the Son of God and put him to an open shame. This is one of the key verses that starts the fight within the body of the Messiah over the issue of once saved, always saved. We will probably be divided over that until Yeshua comes. And those who remain, we know they were saved. <laughs> those you don't look, Where's so-and-so? He ain't here. He wasn't saved. We'll know then. Absolutely. Because God is the only one that knows your heart. As I've said many times, you can fool me. It's easy to fool me. You can trick me in a second. But you can't fool God. Because he knows your very heart. He knows your thoughts. And so the rest of us could be fooled. The scripture says that when the wheat was sawn, that the enemy came in the middle of the night and he sowed tares among with the wheat. And when they were sitting there, the, the workers like, oh my, our enemy came in and did that. Shall we rip out the tares? And he's like, no, 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 no. Because if you do that, you might rip up the wheat too. Let them grow up together. And when the time of the harvest comes, then we'll be able to separate them. So I'm going to tell you, there are people who name the name of Yeshua, Jesus, Yeshu, Yeshua, whatever you call him by, who name his name, and he does not know them. 
And some of them could be pastors over communities, sadly. Some of them are being revealed in America here. We're shocked that people we thought were upright suddenly going against the word of God and declaring certain beliefs that we go like, whoa, hold it, that's not what the word says. And you found out, you know, they had that all along, but it was in the closet, now it's out. God will eventually reveal the hidden things. It's not my job to figure them all out, but at this time, God will reveal it. So anyway, this is the place where the big argument of once saved, always saved. And people always, at some point, being a believer all these years, and especially as a leader, at some point, somebody comes to me and says, Pastor, Hilton, you're going to get this. Now you're a pastor too. You're going to get this. You're going to come up, Pastor Hilton, so, so what's your position on once saved, always saved? You know, they're going to be sitting there ready to strike. One, one person will be on one side, one person will be on the other side, and you're sitting between the two of them realizing no matter what you say, they're going to slice you up. See, the thing is, Let's take a look at some of this, and then we'll, we'll deal with this just a little bit. He starts off, for it is impossible. You know what the word impossible means? Impossible. <laughs> it means to be without power, to be impotent. There's no way to turn it around. That's the real meaning of it, to be impotent, to have no way, no power to turn things around. That's what it means. It says, if it's impossible, it, it is impossible if they shall fall away, I'm skipping in, we'll get the stuff in between, to renew them again into repentance. If they shall fall away. We'll come back to that. Because in between that, he talks about some things that people experience. Because people all want to say, well, he's talking about those who never really were saved. They never really experienced the Spirit of God. They never had inter interaction with God. Those are the people he's talking about. They really were never saved. That's one of the answers that's given in the body of Messiah. It's okay, but you, you got to cut out some scripture to say that because he says the context of this story that the writer is putting before us, for it is impossible those who were once enlightened. The word enlightened means to, to give light, to, to have revelation. So he's not talking about human intervention. He's saying this is something that came from God that gave them revelation of the Messiah. This is something that happened on the spirit realm that the truth of Messiah has been made known to them. Not because you made a great argument in presenting Yeshua, but the spirit of God touched them and opened up their eyes to the truth. Okay? He says, so once we're enlightened, who have tasted? We love tasting, do we not? When Hilton made the food up on the mountain, it smelled good. It looked good. But it was until we tasted it that everybody was saying, mm, 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 mm. Hilton, you outdid yourself this time. Oh, my. This is so, this is better than anything. And it's funny because we always get together to get the food. And every year, Hilton forgets one ingredient. I, and I always ask him, Hilton, you have everything you need? Yes, yeah, I got everything I need. And then he gets up there and he goes, oh. So he has to improvise. He never tells us what he improvises with. He just goes in and starts bringing these spices out. <laughs> and then it goes on the table and we're just like, oh, my. Taste and see. Oh, this is good stuff. So it says, you've tasted of the heavenly gift. This heavenly gift, you know, God's given gifts. John 4.10, Yeshua answered and said to the, to the women at the well, if you knew the gift of God 
who saith to you, give me a drink, then you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. If you knew the gift of God, Acts 8.20 says you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Romans 5.15, but, but not as the offense, so also is the free gift. It's called the gift of grace. And Romans 5.17 is called the gift of righteousness. This is something God has done for you, this gift he's given to you. And we'll see that Yeshua is the ultimate of the gift that God gave his son. And it's saying here that you have tasted of this truth and reality. This is not, oh, well, they really didn't know. No, they, they tasted. Interesting. He goes on, and have become partakers of the Holy Spirit. I don't know how else you can look at this. This doesn't sound like an intellectual interchange. This doesn't look like there's an experience going on with God. That word partake means to share in, to have fellowship in. So you're having a fellowship with the Spirit of God. He goes back to the word tasted and says, tasted the good word of God. And he uses not the word lagos, but he uses the word rhema. And scholars will tell you that rhema means the Lagos made alive by the Spirit. So it says they've tasted of the word that's been made alive in them. This is not a, oh, an intellectual pursuit of understanding who Yeshua, but there's been a supernatural exchange here with this truth and reality of who Yeshua is. And then he says, and tasted. He loves that word tasting. He probably like to eat like I do. Tasted. Of the powers. The word he uses here is a word many of us are familiar with. Dunamis. The dynamic, working, miracle working power of God. They have tasted the miracle working powers of God of the world to come. Which is an exchange life, which is newness. God putting all things in right order. It says if a person has done all of this, he says if they fall away. What does the word fall away mean? It means to deviate from the right path, to wander, to turn aside, to apostatize. It's only used here, nowhere else. That word that's used is only used here. And that's difficult for those of us who study and go back to the language because we want to see how it's used in other places to get a fuller meaning. So we got to depend upon the classic scholars to understand how the word used. And they just simply said it means to turn aside. You were believing and going one way, and now you've decided, and in your heart and with your action, I don't believe this anymore. It's a total rejection of Yeshua. He's not the way of salvation. He's not the way you can get healed. His blood means nothing. Where before you had experienced revelation from God that he is Messiah, has been revealed to you. It's no different what happened with Simon the sorcerer who saw the powerful working of God, who heard the testimony of the way of salvation, who received the, 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 the baptism in the water and came out and even had lands on, hands laid on him to receive the outpouring of the Holy Spirit and he's not changed at all when he wants to use money to buy, it for, buy the giving of the Holy Spirit so he can make money for himself. And all Peter says, you know, your heart is wretched. You pray that God will grant you repentance. You thought you could buy the gift of the Holy Spirit with money. Something weird, like even when we study Simon, it says he believed the message. It says he was water baptized. What's going on inside of him? Well, the thing here, 
we've got to keep this within its context, that he's talking to a group of people who, because of persecution, are beginning to question the very salvation that they have from Yeshua. And they're starting to harden their heart to a revelation that they receive. Many places throughout Scripture, Paul will warn believers, do not harden your heart. Be careful. See, Scripture says God will not be mocked. Whatever a man sows, that's what he's going to reap. So don't play with that. And, and, and the writer sort of leaves you in a place of suspense. Because he's saying it is impossible for those who've had all this experience with God and revelation and spirit, that if they fall away, if they reject the message, if they turn away and say that the blood of Yeshua is not of anything, that they, it's impossible to renew them again to repentance since they crucify again for themselves the Son of God and put him to an open shame. This reminds me of the book of Acts when Peter and others are talking and he's saying to their brethren after the flesh, you crucify the Messiah in your ignorance. And so God gave mercy because this was a sin done in ignorance. You didn't know. But now he's saying if you experience this revelation and this knowledge and you now know and then you choose to reject it and turn away from it, where's the place of repentance for you? Because you are sinning willfully against God, and according to Scripture, according to Torah, that a person who sinned willfully, two or three witnesses, that they were to be put to death. This is not a sin done in a stumble. It's not a, something in ignorance. This is a calculated choice that I don't believe there's any salvation more in Yeshua, even though I experience his goodness. You start making up reasons in your head. Maybe it was an emotional experience. Maybe I just imagined that some change happened. When I got healed, maybe I really wasn't sick. Isn't that something? Thank God for the records, right, Lynn? <laughs> Take a look at the records and say, well, what can we say? We got a long term here and it's all turning around and we didn't do anything. Hopefully it's getting some of those doctors' attention, right? So... There's a strong warning here. The word renew means to renovate, to put it back in the right order. And think about a glass that's been specially made and, and, and then you shatter it. And somebody gives you some super glue and say, put it back together. Even if you can figure out every piece, it will never be like it was before. You can't restore it that way. Somebody always asks, well, what, what is it then? Are, do we have the assurance of salvation or not? And in the body of Messiah, people are in all kind of places about this. Because there are scriptures that do speak of eternal security. John 10, 28 to 29. I will give him eternal life and they shall never perish. No one can snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. No one can snatch them out of my Father's hand. Ephesians 4, 3, do not grieve the Holy Spirit in which you were sealed for the day of redemption. John 3, 15, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. Whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved, in Romans it says, 10. 
And yet there are other verses like Galatians 5, 19 to 21 that gives a long list of all these sins and says, and he's writing this to believers and says, those who do these things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. He didn't write that to the unbeliever. He didn't write that to the unsaved. He's writing that to those who are confessing Yeshua and he's writing to Galatians because they were really screwing up. A lot of sin in the camp. And he says, look, I'm warning you. He did the same thing with the Corinthians. In Corinthians, he talks about, 1 Corinthians 6, 9 to 10. He says, those who do these things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. Long list of all these sins. So if you live in your life that way, I don't care what your testimony about how Yeshua has given you a new heart, a new spirit, but if you're continually choosing sin and walking in sin and living a life of sin, something's wrong. And it's not God. Maybe it's your confession. The thing is, God is faithful. He's able to keep you. Philippians 1, 6, and he says, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Yeshua the Messiah. 1 John 5, 4 through 5, for everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that's overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Yeshua is the Son of God? Yet there are warnings. He says, if it's through this gospel that you are being saved, if you hold firmly to the word, 1 Corinthians 15, 2. Colossians 1, 22, 23. If you remain solidly grounded and firmly fixed in faith. Hebrews 3, 14. If we hold fast to our original confession and conviction firmly to the end. 2 Timothy 2, 11 to 13 says, if we disown him, he will also disown us. So there's this mixture of warning and this mystery, mystery, these scriptures of assurance. So somebody said, well, it's the Donald question. Donald always says to me after listening, okay, pastor, I, I hear all those different views, but what do you say? He always says that to me. And I, I, and I don't know if this holds, you know, it's just something that God put in my heart years ago and I felt comfortable with it, so I still say it. I believe in once saved, always saved, if you're truly saved. That's what I believe. Because God promised there's certain things he would do if you embrace his son. And he will complete that work in you. And he will give you a new heart. And he'll give you a new spirit. And he's not expecting you to fall away. And he's not expecting it here either. The writer is putting forth a case of a strong warning. Say, look, guys, wake up. Hello. Stop playing around with this. You think it's okay to start walking. Well, I don't know if Yeshua, I'm going to entertain the idea that Yeshua, even though I've experienced the Holy Spirit, even though I was speaking in tongues, even though I felt his presence, even though I got healed, even though I've tasted of the good word to come and I felt it in my spirit, but you know, I'm really going through a bad time right now. If, if I got money for every time I sat down with somebody that just says, well, I'm not sure if God loves me. Why? Well, I'm going through hell. Okay. So? So, what's that got to do with anything? Endure. Get on the whole armor of God. Take on everything he has for you. Fight the good fight of faith. Where did it say that as a believer, life should always be easy? It's not. There are seasons that things are great. Everything works well. And then there's seasons that, oh, hell's breaking out. You go, oh, my God, what do I do? And you cry out on him, and he will strengthen you. And he may take it away, but he may say, plow through it. Endure it. He doesn't always stop the trial you're in. 
but he will give you the weapons of warfare to be successful in it. So don't lose faith. Gird up your loins and get ready for the battle. You, you know, some of us have been involved in martial arts and we train people. I remember he's trying to teach people and they go out and they're getting scared and we would bring them back and say, what's your problem? Get up your lawns, do what you were trained to do and get out there. You can beat that guy. Sometimes my, my instructor used to say that. What are you backing away from? Get in there, man. Get in there. You are more than able to do this. You have been trained. Take them out. That's the way they said it. I go, yeah. <laughs> Take them out. Well, God's given us great weapons of warfare. Everything we need to be successful in life, 2 Peter, first chapter, he's given us all things pertaining to life and godliness. Everything you need to walk in righteousness. The Torah itself dwells inside of you. The Spirit of God dwells inside of you. He will cause you to walk in his ways. His power is there. So what if you have some persecution along the way? How are you going to know if your faith is real unless you have some persecution? Don't you think your faith is going to be tested? The scripture says the testing of your faith produces endurance, perseverance to press in. Because at the end, that's the glory that you endure to the end. And you say, no matter what's thrown my way, Yeshua is real and true and alive and the only name under heaven by which men must be saved. And I'm willing to die for that. Hallelujah. And persecution will not back me away. I'm just going to press into his kingdom. So I believe once saved, always saved, if you're truly saved. There are promises of God. Let's see if we can finish this up. So the context of here, he's putting forth, I'm glad he says, if you fall away. There's not an ex expectation of falling away. Look what he says. I love this. For the earth which drinks in the rain that often comes upon it, and bears herbs useful for it by whom it is cultivated, receives blessings from God, but if it bears thorns and briars, it is rejected and near to being cursed whose end is to be burned. So he's drawing a principle that if, that if God is pouring out all these wonderful blessings on you, it, that should cause you to bring forth fruit, but instead you bring forth thorns and thistles, God has a plan for your life. And that, land, that plan is to gather you at the end of days and cast you in the fire. Because he's given you everything that pertains to life. Why are you producing death? But look what he says about these people. I love this. Because I tell you, before I read the next verse, I'm like, man, this is heavy stuff. Oh, Lord, may there no, no thorns come forth in my life. But look what he says. But beloved, we are confident of better things concerning you. Yes, things that accompany salvation, though we speak in this manner. It's like a parent, you know, just trying to get the reality of the seriousness of the disobedience, but not having any expectation that the child's going to continue in disobedience, but a great expectation that they're going to turn and reapply their faith to do what is right. That's what the writer's doing. He has confidence that these people that he's speaking to are going to understand what he's saying, and they were going to rise up, gird up their loins, and say, yes. He even says, for God is not unjust to forget your work and labor of love which you have shown towards his name and that you have ministered to the saints and do minister. God knows what you're going through. 
He knows where you've walked out in righteousness. He doesn't forget that. That's special and precious to him. And he'll remember that and he'll take that. Even when you're at the point of like, I think, I don't know if he loves me. I don't know if he loves me. He's like, I got you, sister. I got you, brother. I'm not giving up on you. Scripture says, I'm so glad it says this, is even if we're not faithful, he is. And so we have confidence in him. And so the writer says, and we desire that each one of you show the same diligence to the full assurance of hope until the end, that you do not become sluggish, but imitate those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. That's the exhortation of them. Look, I know you're going through a rough time. I know it's hard. I had to speak strong words to you. Don't play around with this thing. Don't find yourself getting shipwrecked in the faith and cast aside. And I believe better things of you. I, I'm, th- I'm, I'm expecting salvation in your life. And I want to know God's going to remember what you've walked through so far and how you've walked in righteousness. He's going to remember that. I'm just trying to encourage you. Don't become a sluggard. Walk in the things that you know. Live it out. Stop going to the, to the psychiatrist. Stop going to the counselor over and over again for the same thing. Start to walk in what you know to be the truth. You shouldn't have to be getting counseling again and again and again when the counselor's like, I've said all I know to say. Ten different ways. I've prayed over you. I've given you scriptures. I've cast out demons. I've bound it up. I did all of this stuff. And you're still acting like you've never been to a meeting in your life? What's wrong with you? Stop it. Stop playing around with the gospel. Let the good news come in your life and let the righteousness of God move in you and cause you to walk in newness of life. He does not want you on the table, on the couch for the rest of your life. He wants you rising up and putting, getting somebody else who's on the couch and helping them to get off. We got to grow in the things of the kingdom. Stop thinking you got to always go and get stuff redone. Just walk in what you know to be the truth. Don't be, have a spirit of unbelief of what he's done. Set your eyes on things above. Stop looking at the problem. Look at the solution. He's sitting above. You're surely going to trip over something. You're walking around like this. You're supposed to look to the Lord. Let him guide you and direct you. For when God made a promise to Abraham... Because he could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself, saying, Surely blessing, I will bless you, and multiplying, I will multiply you. And so after he had patiently endured, he obtained the promise. For men indeed swear by the greater, and an oath for confirmation is for them an end of all dispute. Thus God, determining to show more abundantly to the heirs of promise the the immutability of his counsel, confirmed by an oath that by two immutable things in which it's impossible for God to lie, we might have strong consolation who have fled for refuge to lay hope, hold of the hope set before us. God's word is unchangeable. His counsel, his word, what he promises, it is true. He's not a man that he should lie. If he says something's going to happen, it's going to happen. You can bank on it. It's immutable. But for him to add to that an oath, things we understand that require a person to take an oath, now we're like, okay, 
take them to the courthouse, get an oath, get them to sign the thing. We're like, done deal. I'm dealing with some insurance issues with a, with a car. I got hit a number of weeks ago. And finally, the insurance company is that, that's, that the driver who, who did the hitting uh, came back to me. And they tell me all this stuff over the phone. Great stuff, some of it. Not all of it. And I finally had to say to the guy, okay, I'm glad you told all of that. Will you please put that on some letterhead and send it to me? I want it in writing. Because there's more of a certainty and surety when it's in writing and it's got that stamp on it and it's approved and you can go before a judge and say, here's what they said. And the judge says, it's binding. But I can say all I want to. Well, he said to me over the phone that he's going to do this and do that. And he was like, no, I didn't say that. I don't know what he's talking about. Mr. Finley's making stuff up. So an oath was always seen by people as like, this is binding. And God, whose word by itself is unchangeable, so he would want to make Abraham know that, hey, what I'm promising you is going to come about. God takes an oath. God swears, I'm going to fulfill this. And here's a good thing. In those days when you made that kind of covenant, in those days they took an animal and they cut it in half. And you pass through the pieces of the animal. And the idea behind that was, was several fold. But one idea was that what has happened to this animal, if I ever break this covenant, will happen to me. That's how serious this is. This is forever. And when Abraham was put to sleep, and the animals were cut, and he's trying to keep the birds away from eating the animals, and then God appears as a smoking torch and passes through the pieces that when Abraham got word of that, it was time to do the Holy Ghost dance. Because he realized God can't die. He's forever. And he just made covenant with me that I will be a father of many nations. And I will be a father of a great nation. He just passed right through and swore this will happen. Oh, my, my, my. It's going to happen. It's going to be real. It's got, he, can't, he can't back out of this one because he doesn't walk through the pieces. And if he breaks this, we can't kill him anyway. He's got to keep this thing. And so these two promises, his word and his oath that he's put out there for us, and both of those things, it's impossible for him to lie. Why? And he's writing this to the people of Hebrews, and he's writing to us today. So that we might have strong consolation, comfort, who have fled for refuge to lay hold of the hope set before us. Have you run to the refuge? You see the tornado coming, the sirens have gone off, and they got a place that said, this is it, and the doors are open. They say, come to the refuge. In the old days, they called it the strong tower of the military place where they could defend the fort. Have you run into the strong tower? Have you entered into the place of safety? Do you have that sense of that there's hope there? For he says this, this hope we have as an anchor of the soul. And the ship, you know, not only were anchors used to keep the ship from floating away at docks, but if you know anything about boating, when they get in a storm, they'll drop the anchor, even though it's not on the bottom, they drop the anchor because it helps them to guide the ship. So 
That's what they do. So the anchor was not only for keeping it in place, but to help you to guide when you're in rough waters. And so he says, this hope we have as an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast, which enters the presence behind the veil, meaning the most holy place where all the atonement is made. Where the forerunner has entered for us. And then he's going to tell us who this hope is. He's going to tell us who this one that's entered into the presence in the most holy place to make atonement for us. And then where our confidence is, he says, even Yeshua, having become high priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. He's gone full circle. See, earlier that's where he was talking. He started introduced Yeshua as Melchizedek, and then he just stopped. I got a lot to say to you, but you can't hear it because you got dull of hearing. So he went off on these other trails, and then he's come back to the very foundation. And from this point on, he's going to develop that even deeper for us of why it is important that we understand these things. So continue to read. Continue to grow. Continue to see the freedom that you have in Yeshua. As I said to you earlier, our theme in the mountain was about freedom. I had one little thing to say to you about it. Real freedom comes when we stop excusing and accusing concerning the law of God. The law of God that has been written in our hearts. And in humility, take the yoke of God as bondservants, loving our master and his household, becoming a slave willingly, and putting our total reliance upon his ability to make us righteous. That's freedom. Freedom is not being able to do whatever you want to do. That's called anarchy. Freedom is that you're under authority somewhere. But when you're under a godly authority, you have real freedom. One of the mistakes that we make as believers sometimes, we think, because the Scripture says, the Son sets free is free indeed. That that means I'm free, I can do whatever I want to do. My wife and I talk about this all the time. We're sitting at home. She says, you know, we were lied to. I said, what, dear? She said, I don't know how you grew up in your household, but in my household, they used to always say to me, when you're grown up, you can do what you want to do. I said, yeah, I used to hear that too. We looked at each other and said, that ain't true. That's not true at all. In fact, the older I got, it seemed like the more responsibilities I had, I had more people than ever. It used to just be my parents and I had tons of other people telling me, I can't go here, I can't go here, can't do this. There are rules and regulations. You get in the work world and you get certain security clearances. They tell you there's certain things you can't do, certain places you can't go, certain countries you can't go to anymore. It's a lie that the older you get, that when you get old enough, Nicole, you'll be free to do whatever you want to do. They lied to you. It's not the truth. You find yourself with children, suddenly you got all this responsibility. You just want to go out in the backyard with some lemonade and kick your feet up, and you hear, Mommy, Dad. Oh, boy. <laughs> Let's go deal with this. I told a story, and I wish it was mine, and I could take the credit and say I made it up, but I didn't. I got this from a children's program. Some of you might remember Thomas the Train. Yes, you remember that? I used to love to watch that show. But one time, even after I got grown up, I used my kids as a reason to watch it. (laughs) 
I mean, I'll go to places and they have it on and I'll be sitting there with my kids watching this. Oh, oh yeah, my kids are watching this program. Please don't turn the channel because I'm really into this. <laughs> you know, I love this stuff. But they had one story about this, this train. Big old locomotive. And he was known for all the things he did. I mean, he could pull cars and tank oil tankers and boxcars and everything all over the world. Just go on there. But he wasn't happy with his call in life. Because he would look over and he would see deer jumping around in the field, going where they wanted to go. And he'd see birds flying in the air. He said, I'm just stuck on these tracks. I'm just stuck on the tracks. I want to be free. I want real freedom. I want to get out of this bondage. After a while, he couldn't take it anymore. And he saw this real sharp curve on the track. And he says, you know, because the train's on Thomas, the train, they talk. (laughs) They can talk, right? And he says, if I can go fast enough, I can jump the track. I can, I can jump the track. And he goes really fast, and he jumps the track. And while he's in the air, he's thinking, I'm free. Look at me, I'm free. And then he goes crashing down into the marsh, bearing deep inside, and not able to do anything anymore. And losing his ability to do all those things. Just a locomotive just sitting out there in the marshland. He didn't understand that it was the tracks that gave him real freedom. The scripture says, take my yoke upon yourself. Yeshua says, I didn't come to, he didn't say, I came to set you free, you can do whatever you want to do. Take my yoke. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. I have a burden for you and I have a yoke for you. If you want real freedom, you'll take them both. And I will bring forth the fullness of what you've been designed to be. Just like that train, taking that track upon himself, allow him to go all over the world. All over the place. There's a yoke for us people. Don't be afraid of the yoke. Take the yoke on. Take his burden on. And watch what he does with your life. He'll do powerful things. Let's stand up.